0: We are going to make a full about, roundabout turn back to the Sermon on the Mount. It's been a while. It's actually been five weeks since we left the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, there has been a series of things, special events. We had Scott's ordination in the end of, of November that began the hiatus from the Sermon on the Mount. And then uh, we had a Christmas message, and then Frank's last um, Sunday with us, and then our Christmas service, and then we were off. So it's just been one thing after another, but here we are back again, and uh, we're going to recapture the Sermon on the Mount. But kind of like those, um, if you notice these uh, series, TV series, they take long breaks between seasons. Sometimes it's like a year or more, especially during the pandemic, and then they got to catch you up. Right, They've got to tell you what, the, what you missed and, and kind of what was going on before the long break. So kind of want to do that a little bit this morning so we can get back into the swing of what we're talking about with the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, if you recall, is most likely a, an early catechism of the early church, uh, or catechism of the early church, and a compilation of Jesus' teachings. It's most likely he didn't deliver it all at once. Uh, most scholars believe he probably didn't. And one of the reasons is is that it was delivered in Luke's gospel at all different places. Same material spread out over the gospel in different places. So it looks like Matthew, the author of Matthew, condensed it all into three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and put it in a very distinctive order. Sometimes it appears random, like today. It's going to appear random, but there's a, there's a purpose to it. In, in Matthew 5, Jesus gives us that picture of the finished product, the Beatitudes. What does a kingdom person look like? And what is the effect of a kingdom person, both on the individual and also on the community that he or she is living within? And then from there, he goes on to start redefining the law. The biggest and most foundational parts of Jewish life had to be redefined Everything is going to look different through this lens that Jesus is polishing for us right here. If we're going to look through at life in the way the Father looks at life, then it's going to necessitate us radically thinking differently about everything. And so he takes the law, something that was foundational to Jewish life, and he starts to redefine it in terms of heart issues working from the inside out rather than from the outside in. And then in in chapter 6, where we left off, he does the same thing for the righteousness that the Jews exemplified in three specific areas, in giving of alms or charity, in prayer, and in fasting. And he's going to take a look at that in terms of the way that it was culturally practiced in his day and then redefine it again. And then in chapter 7, he's going to apply that and see how it applies to different facets of life. And so you have this radical reframing of religious and civil, both religious and civil, and spiritual life, and turns everything that you think you know on its head. It did for the people that he was speaking to in his day, and it still does for us today. Because it's focused on the individual heart and not the group, and also, because it's poetically charged. Remember we spent a lot of time talking about how Jesus is a poet. He speaks like a poet. And even if what is preserved for us in the Gospels is not technically poetry, it still functions like poetry. It is filled with the metaphor and the figurative speech and the symbolism of good poetry. It is meant to evoke a response in us. It's meant to point at something that cannot be specifically defined or detailed in logical speech. Spirit is like that. can't happen. And so because of those things, the Sermon on the Mount functions on a different level, and it's been really difficult for the church to come to grips with it for 2,000 years. That's why we spend much more time focused on Paul than Jesus, because Paul gives us specific parameters that we can hang a church on. Jesus does not. Jesus is giving us these heart principles That work from the inside out. But if you try to put a group on that, it looks like anarchy. There is just no way that you can have an institution wrapped around these issues. That's why so many of them look on their face as if they're morally bankrupt even, that they don't even fly in the face of what we understand as morality. Because Jesus is taking these issues and turning them around to see from a different point of view how they actually function. Now we left off in the middle of chapter six. Now in chapter six where he's redefining righteousness, the Jews had these three markers, these three ways that they measured their righteousness and that was giving of alms and prayer and fasting. Now what the Pharisees did was to take all of these three and turn them outward, turn them on for show. So when they gave alms, they would sound the trumpet, they would bang them into the collection uh, receptacles in, the, in this uh, courtyard of the temple and they would make sure that everybody knew how much they were giving. When they were praying, those three times of prayer that were mandated during the Jewish day, they would make sure they were on the busiest street corners, in the marketplace or in the temple, so that everybody could see them praying. And they lengthened the tassels on their tallit, their prayer shawls, and they broadened the phylacteries that they would wear, the boxes with scrolls hidden inside, so that everybody could see how righteous they were. Jesus is taking all of those and turning them inward back to pure intent between the individual and God alone. He's trying to purify the idea that the people have of these practices. They're not about a communal show. They're about something that happens in secret. There's something that happens just between you and your God that nobody else will see, that you're willing to continue to do these things with nobody knowing, completely invisible, completely in secret. And then after instructing them how to pray, same sort of issue, you know, don't do it out there in the marketplace, don't do it as a show, but retreat into your inner room, both internally, figuratively speaking, and also literally, go to a place in your home where you can be alone. And then he gives us the Lord's Prayer. And we went through the Lord's Prayer. That was the last two Sundays that we had where we we took a couple of Sundays to talk about the Lord's Prayer. How the Lord's Prayer was never meant to be recited, even though we do recite it. It was meant to be lived as an alternate way of life. If we could take those five phrases and actually live those the way that we broke them down, it would be life-transforming. It is the way of Jesus in its most concentrated form. We talked about those matroskas, you know, those those uh, Russian nesting dolls, where you've got the Bible, and inside the Bible, you've got the New Testament, inside the New Testament, you've got the Gospels, inside the Gospels, you've got Matthew, inside of Matthew, you've got the Sermon on the Mount, inside the Sermon on the Mount, you've got the Lord's Prayer. Every one of those is a more and more... Pure distillation, concentration of the singular message of the way of Jesus. And the Lord's Prayer gives us that in five points. How is it that we live this way that will take us to the Father, that will take us to this truth that makes us free, that will take us to an experience of truth that we can't get any other way? I am the way, Jesus said, the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me, through this way of living life. That's what he's getting at. And so the Lord's Prayer here was meant as a way of life, not as a prayer to be recited. It's not that reciting it is wrong, as long as we are recalling it as a reminder to actually live the tenets. Not that the prayer in and of itself has any value. It's just a string of words. But when those words mean the cues to intention to live a life consciously as Jesus is describing for us, then everything changes. So right after he gives us the Lord's Prayer, in a seeming completely non-sequitur, familiar with that? Non-sequitur, it's Latin, does not follow. <laughs> he, makes a, he makes a lane change without signaling. This is what I'm all, always accusing Drummer Dave of doing. He's always making lane changes without signaling. Is, his whole mind is kind of stream of consciousness. Well, Jesus is doing that here. He's talking about prayer. He's talking about the Lord's Prayer. Suddenly he starts talking about forgiveness. All right? And then he comes back to fasting after a couple of lines on forgiveness. Now, why is forgiveness sandwiched in between prayer and fasting? In a section, a passage that's dealing with these three areas of righteousness that Jesus is redefining for us. At first glance, it seems really out of place. But if you think about it, yes, there is forgiveness in that fourth stanza of the Lord's Prayer. He talks about forgiveness there. But what Jesus is actually doing here, I believe, is he's building a really strong case for a different way of living life, a different attitude toward life, of which the Lord's Prayer is the key. That is the way itself. But there is a block to this way of living life, one that will derail it more surely and completely than any other, and that is Unforgiveness. Unforgiveness is the fire hose that just puts out the flame of kingdom completely. Unforgiveness is the locked door, it's the brick wall, it's the glass ceiling, use the metaphor of your choice, that disallows you from being able to partake in the kingdom that is here. Unforgiveness. And the Jews of Jesus' day were taught both religiously and culturally against forgiveness. And so this was a really important point for Jesus to make for them. The Jews weren't taught about forgiveness as being the key. They were if you got back into the prophets, but in daily cultural life, it was a lot more about vengeance and it was a lot more about restitution than it ever was about forgiveness. We've talked about the honor and shame society, the honor and shame culture. And I don't know if you recall that. But an honor and shame society is built on two kind of key pillars. One of them is, is that the, the tribe, the family, is all about maintaining honor and avoiding shame or recovering quickly from shame and restoring honor. That's the way that they measure their power within the community and their ability to do what they need to do, is maintaining that honor. And the second is that everything is looked at collectively. The person exists to serve the community. The person is just an extension of the community and doesn't have any individual rights the way we think of them in our society. And so one person who encounters shame, that means the entire clan shares that shame. And if anything is done to a clan, done to a tribe, done to a family that incurs shame, then they are absolutely honor-bound to return in kind what was done to them to restore their honor, which means then the other tribe is honor bound to restore that honor. And now you've got the Hatfields and McCoys, and it just goes on and on and on and on and on and on. That's why the lex talionis was actually a merciful thing to say, hey, an eye for an eye, that's it. You knock out someone's eye, you get your no- eye knocked out. But that's as far as it goes. This isn't going to go on forever until everybody is dead or blind, right? And so, so it sounds to us like the lex talionis, that law of retaliation, is, is, is so barbaric and brutal. But it actually was better than what was going on. So this is, this is baked into the culture of Jesus' followers. It's about vengeance. These blood feuds were part of their culture. And then secondly, the Pharisees are saying, if someone wrongs you in any way, then you are to keep the serpent in your heart until they make full restitution. That means the serpent in your heart was their idiomatic way, their their poetic way of saying, hey, keep the anger burning, keep the unforgiveness going. You do not forgive them until they have paid back the last penny, until they have restored your honor. This was the culture that the people who were listening to Jesus were part of. So, this idea of forgiveness wasn't something that they were seeing practiced on a regular basis. So, Jesus, on the other hand, is bringing forgiveness to the fore. When Peter asked him, How many times should I forgive my brother? Up to seven. Now seven is a perfect number. If you look at it symbolically, that's what he's asking. Jesus says, "No, not seven. Seventy times seven. Okay, is that four hundred ninety? No, it's basically saying forever in a day. Perfection times perfection times ten. So he's saying you never stop forgiving. He is giving parables constantly about forgiveness. the The prodigal son is a perfect example of forgiveness that has no merit whatsoever. The prodigal did nothing to earn the forgiveness that he got from his father. His father just lives it, couldn't wait to bestow it upon him, to the outrage of the older brother. This theme comes back over and over again with Jesus, loving the enemy. That was something that was so foreign to this culture. It's foreign to ours as well. Let's be honest. And so Jesus is bringing this idea of forgiveness to the fore all the time, and he brings it up here. Take a look at Matthew six fourteen and fifteen. He's going to bring it up, but he's going to bring it up in a way that is going to spin our heads around again, because that's what Jesus does. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Does that seem to fly in the face of everything I just said? I mean, we've talked over and over in here about God's love being unconditional, about God's love not being based on a, on a uh, performance that we perform like trained seals to be able to get the favors of God, that that's not what God's love is all about. God is love. He doesn't do it and withhold based on our performance. And forgiveness is the same way. Forgiveness is love, right? When trust has been broken, What in the world is Jesus talking about here? Only if you forgive, then your Father will forgive you. But if you don't, then neither will he. Why is he saying this? Does he make, is he making God's love, God's forgiveness, conditional, performance-based, all over again? And doesn't this violate these other teachings, the ones that I was just mentioning? How about when Jesus says from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What do they do to deserve that? What restitution did they make? Jesus should have been keeping the serpent in his heart at that moment. Where was the forgiveness from them that would allow him to forgive them? What's going on here? We're setting up all sorts of contradictions in terms, it seems like. And so, if we're going to dig down a little bit, we can start to get to where Jesus is coming from. First of all, in Aramaic, the word for forgiveness is sebach. Now, interestingly enough, the word for freedom is subkana. They both share the same root. When Jewish words that are part of a root and pattern system, there's a vertical alignment, you know, the word that comes from the root that comes from the letter, all of these have meanings and the meanings are consistent throughout. Although they're changing as they get into the words, they still carry the same root meaning. And so in the Jewish mind, to use two words that come from the same root, which means to restore, to return to its original status, original state of being, you know, that in the Jewish mind, to forgive is to make free, to set free, and to set free is to be forgiven. To them, there's an equivalency there. Yeah, there's there's difference in the application of that concept. But the idea is the same. To be forgiven is to be set free, and to be set free is to be forgiven, to release, to restore, to come back to where you originally were. Who can set you free? Think about that. Who can set you free? Really set you free. There is a great scene from uh, the movie Shawshank Redemption. Have you all seen it? Shawshank at some point or another? Uh, The the character that uh, Morgan Freeman plays, Red, Uh, he is the best friend of of Andy, the, the lead. When he gets released after 40 years in prison, he doesn't know what to do with himself. He really doesn't know how to cope, he doesn't know how to live. He's been Literally, almost his entire adult life, been under lock and key, under the rules of the prison. He gets a job checking at a grocery store, and every time he has to go to the bathroom, he raises his hand and calls the manager over and asks him if he can go pee. And the manager finally says, you don't have to ask me every time. You know, you just go if you need to go. And then in voiceover, he says, after 40 years of institutionalized life, I couldn't pee a drop without (laughs) say-so. He couldn't do it. Yes, the doors were open for him. Yes, he walked out into the free world. Was he free? No, he was still living in that place. It would take a lot of undoing to get him to the place where he was really free. Another older inmate who is released ends up hanging himself in the same movie because he just can't deal with it. He was lost without the structure and the security of that prison cell. Who really can make us free? How does that work? We can be released, right? We can be apologized to. Restitution can be made to us. But when are we really free? Have you apologized to a person and you know that you still weren't forgiven? I think we've all experienced that. How many times have you been apologized to and you weren't ready to forgive? We can all probably relate to that as well. Who makes us free? We do. We are not free until we say so. That's how that works. And it's not just a cognitive thing, it's not just a say so that we say in our minds, it's a working through to freedom that needs to take place after the hurt has happened, after the trauma has been incurred. For us to work through and get back to freedom is what this is all about, to get back to forgiveness, which is the same as being set free. Set free from what? Set free from the trauma. Set free from the anger. Set free from the bitterness, the resentment. Set free from the sense of victimhood that was perpetrated on us in whatever way that it was. We live that stuff for decades, lifetimes often, and are never set free never forgiven for something that we didn't even do to ourselves because we are the only ones who have say-so. We're the ones who can say when we are free. This has nothing to do with the offender, the perpetrator. This has nothing to do with an apology extended or received. It has nothing to do with restitution made. The only way that we're free is when we say so. It's an interior process of releasing the victimhood. This is the huge point that Jesus is making. Until you forgive, your Father in heaven doesn't forgive you. That's the Jewish idiomatic way of speaking, as if God is the actor. God is always the actor in Jewish thought, because nothing happens without God say so. But the truth of the matter is, we are the actor here. What Jesus says is literally true. Until we forgive, until we return ourselves to freedom, set freeness, we will never understand how forgiven we actually are. We either forgive or it does not happen at all. And we can't be forgiven without forgiving because they are one and the same. As we hold on to unforgiveness, as we just hold on to victimhood, then we can't understand what freedom is all about. We can't experience what forgiveness is all about. Literally, they are one and the same. Because God never withholds. We talked about that over and over. God doesn't forgive as a verb any more than he loves as a verb. God is forgiveness. God is love. And scrape them as much down as you want to. You're going to get love all the way down to the periodic table of the elements with God because there's nothing else there. God can't withhold what God is. We can hide from it, but God doesn't withhold it. So we are literally as forgiven as we want to be every moment, every day, all the time. God has already done his part. God's relationship with us is never broken from his point of view. Only we experience that. And so in order for us to know that that relationship is real, that that relationship is unbroken, the only way we can do that is to forgive, to bring ourselves back into that freedom, let go of the victimhood, become vulnerable again. And this is what it's all about, isn't it? When we get hurt, our defenses go up right? We close down because we don't want to get hurt again. We need to protect ourselves. And as long as we do that, we've created that glass ceiling toward connection, toward being able to be connected, to be present to each other and to God. And so as long as those defenses stay up, those shields stay up, then we are no longer present to the very forgiveness, the set freeness that we're looking for in the first place. It's hugely ironic, but it's also hugely human. You know, it's what we do. To be able to let go of that victimhood, to become vulnerable again, to be open again, to become hurtable again, obviously, so that we can be present to God is what allows us to be present to the forgiveness that's already there. If you're not present, how could you possibly know? So it's here, after these two short lines, that Jesus returns to righteousness again and he picks it up at fasting. We'd already gone through almsgiving and prayer, and now he's going to pick it up at fasting. And fasting as a way to become open and vulnerable. Fasting as a further step on this journey toward Father, if you want to think of it that way. Take a look at Matthew 16. I'm sorry, Matthew 6, verse, (laughs) certainly not 118. Whenever you fast do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. For they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men while they are fasting. Here's the theme, right, of the Pharisees. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men. But your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, fasting was a part of Jewish ritual life. There were set days for fasting, and they're usually Mondays and Thursdays during the week. And so if you were following the the cultural ritual cycles, then you would fast on Mondays and Thursdays during the week. Now, Luke 18, um, verse 12, talks about that. The prayer of the Pharisee, when he's considering, you know, God, thank you that I'm not like this poor slob over here, this this uh, tax gatherer. You know, I fast twice a week and I give tithes on all that I bring in, all my income. He's talking about the the ritual things that prove the righteousness. So he fasts twice a week, he gives his tithes, he's praying right now. Those are the three ways that he has of showing himself how he is completely righteous as opposed to the others. The Pharisees obviously made sure that everybody knew that they were fasting and praying and giving alms. That was the idea in terms of fasting it 's actually kind of comical. They would put on mournful faces you know they would put on a big affect so that everybody knew that they were that they were hungry and that they were going through their fasting. They would put ashes on their head they 'd put ashes on their cheeks to make themselves look you know famished and hollow and, and all this. so they would go and put on all these airs so people knew that they were actually fasting as a proof of their righteousness. But because they're doing that, because that's where their heart was coming from, there's no vulnerability there. There's no openness there. And there's certainly no knowing of God. That's why Jesus says they have their reward in full. Whatever they get from this, You know, if they get more adulation from the people, if they get another rung up the social ladder, that's all they get. There is no more reward because they aren't getting to know God any further. They aren't connecting in any way beyond that. And if they're not fasting for that adulation for the carrot, then they're fasting as part of law. Now it becomes an obligation. It's like we talked about with the first mile. The first mile is a mile of obligation, right? If someone impresses upon you to go one mile, Jesus says, go with them too. First mile, the one that is obligated, teaches you nothing. You're just following the rules. You're doing what you have to do so you don't get beaten or thrown into prison. But when you go the second mile, everything happens in the second mile. The voluntary mile, the one that you add, That's where fasting changes color, changes shape, when it's no longer part of an obligation. For those of us who grew up Catholic or maybe in uh, Episcopal Church, you know, we had Lent and we had fasting during Lent. We had fasting on Fridays. There was always fasting on Fridays. So you couldn't eat meat on Fridays. You had to eat fish or something else. And then during Lent, you couldn't eat. And then of course, they would always have us, as children especially, give up something we really liked during Lent. I don't know if you remember that. So it was candy or something, to really, they had to give it up, you know. And so it became, a, it became a penance, it became a punishment for your sin, right, that you had to give up all this stuff. And it put this weird cast on, on, on Lent. It was always about giving up, it was always about being punished, it was about letting go of the things I really love, and you know, here was the mindset, especially as a kid during all this stuff. And it wasn't just us as kids. I mean, we're, we're talking about two, you know, 1,500 years maybe of, of, of culture here. You go way back into the Middle Ages, and where does Mardi Gras come from? I've heard of Mardi Gras. Do you know what it means? Literally, it's French for Fat Tuesday is what Mardi Gras means. The Tuesday before Ash Wednesday when you started Lent and the Lenten fast was a day of excess, a day when you would eat until you burst because you weren't going to be eaten the next day carnival. You know where carnival comes from, the word carnival? It comes from Italian. Carnevale, which means farewell to meet. (laughs) Now, in some cultures, especially centuries ago, carnival was actually practiced all the way from epiphany to Ash Wednesday. So you had weeks there of, of these celebrations and these festivals and all these rich foods and everything. So whether it was weeks or whether it was just a day or two, the idea of Carnival, the idea of Mardi Gras, was that you were going to have this excuse to indulge like crazy before you were forced to abstain. Is that the right attitude, do you think, for <laughs> fasting, as Jesus would have us to understand? There's also fasting as a quid pro quo. I had some people actually tell me, I'm going to fast until something happens. I'm going to fast until I get my answer. I'm going to fast until I get what it is that I'm looking for. I remember at one point in my life when I was just really down in the bottom as I could go, I decided I was going to fast until I got my answer. And I got out three days eating nothing for three days. You know what I did on the third day? I ate a whole pepperoni pizza by myself, and watched Lawrence of, of, of Lawrence of Arabia all three and a half hours or whatever the heck it was, and just ate that pizza all by myself. You know, got no other information besides pepperoni pizza, Lawrence of Arabia. You know, was that the right attitude to be able to go into fasting? See, what is the right attitude for fasting? What is it that Jesus is trying to get across from us? And here we can turn to Isaiah. One of the most prolific poets in the Bible, absolutely, insanely gorgeous book. But look at Isaiah 58, starting at verse 3. The people ask, why should we fast if the Lord never notices? Why should we go without food if he pays no attention? The Lord says to them, the truth is that at the same time you fast, you pursue your own interest and oppose your workers. Your fasting makes you violent and you quarrel and fight. Do you think this kind of fasting will make me listen to your prayers? When you fast, you make yourself suffer. You bow your heads low like a blade of grass and spread out sackcloth and ashes to lie on. Is that what you call fasting? Do you think I will be pleased with that? The kind of fasting I want is this. Remove the chains of oppression and the yoke of injustice and let the oppressed go free. Share your food with the hungry and open your homes to the homeless poor. Give clothes to those who have nothing to wear and do not refuse to help your own relatives. Then my favor will shine on you like the morning sun and your wounds will be quickly healed. I will always be with you to save you. My presence will protect you on every side. Did you hear the set-freeness in God's answer to the people? This is the kind of fasting that I have in mind, to set free the people around you, literally forgive the people around you, free the oppressed, bring them back into equilibrium with whatever they need, whether it's housing or food, bring everybody back up to that level of shalom. Fasting itself means nothing. You know, is it a health fast you're going after? Okay, well then there's something there. But fasting in itself as a ritual means nothing. Fasting is not righteous. Relationship, oneness, compassion, those are righteous. If your alms giving, if your prayer, if your fasting leads you into relationship and oneness and compassion, then they are righteous. And if not, Don't do them. There's no point. Even here, though, in Isaiah, it starts to sound like a quid pro quo, doesn't it? If you will do these things, then I will favor you. Then I will heal your wounds quickly. Then I will be your protection. Is this what Jesus and is this what God is talking about? Once again, we need to read through the idiomatic phrasing of the Jews. Because the truth is, that the heart that is open, the heart that is vulnerable enough to be compassionate in the first place is already there, already in God's favor, already in God's healing, already in God's protection. The healing, the favor, the protection, that was already there, that has always been there, that can never be anywhere else, never withheld but unnoticed by those who remain unforgiven, those who remain imprisoned, not by God, by ourselves, by our own unwillingness to forgive, to set ourselves free. God isn't interested in the ritual. He's only interested in the set freeness of heart. That's it. How free are we? If you continue in my word, then you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. That is everything to our God, everything to Jesus, to be set free enough that our heart is free to be compassionate, to be fearlessly vulnerable, open, connectable. Any righteous thing that we do, righteous in quotation marks, is only sacred if it comes from a heart set free enough to be open and vulnerable. There is no kingdom without forgiveness because there can be no kingdom without hearts free to be vulnerable. Those of you who have been hurt really deeply, and I know there's probably every one of us at some level, may find some of this objectionable. You know, it's like, these people that hurt me and the way that they hurt me, they don't deserve forgiveness. That's, you know, what goes through our minds so often. It's hard to understand sometimes what Jesus is taking us, when he's taking us to such a radical place. When we're hurt, when we close down, when our defenses are up, when the anger and the resentment and the bitterness is there, it becomes that glass ceiling, though, to full connection. It's not about who deserves what. It's about how free do you want to be? How forgiven do you want to be? Because we can become defined by that pain. We can become defined by that victimhood, and we often do. And then that colors everything that we see around us. There is no kingdom in that kind of state of being. There can't be. Kingdom is about complete freedom to be connected with each other, complete openness with each other. Anything less than that misses the mark, literally sinful, in missing the mark of that complete connection. And it's a contradiction in terms. Jesus is saying that we are the only ones in heaven or on earth who can set ourselves free. God can't do it for us without violating our free will, which violates our ability to love as God loves, which must be a free choice. It's not a light switch that we flip. It's living away, this way of Jesus. And it happens as we live along this way to kingdom, to truth, to Abba, to Father. When we become aware of, of the thoughts and emotions and attitudes that break the intent of law that are harbored in our heart, when we can become aware of them so that we can make different choices, when we realize that sometimes we need to break the letter of the law in order to fulfill the intent of the law, in order to fulfill what love demands in any given moment, when we can see ourselves, see ourselves in those who offend us the most, who irritate us the most who are the most offensive in everything that they do and think and think and say when we can see ourselves in them and find identity when we can actually care for and care about those people who offend us when we can begin to actually love our enemies when we are willing to show up each day over and over again to do the same work, that work which will bring the greatest good to the greatest amount of people, when we are willing to be completely invisible and unnoticed as we show up each day over and over to do this work, not because anybody sees it, but it's because it's who we are and we would never be happy without showing up every day invisibly to this work then we are know, we know that our hearts are being set free. They're opened. They're vulnerable. And we know that we are forgiven, restored to our original state. It's in that kind of environment that we will meet our God and we will know that we know that He is this forgiveness. Because we will literally be free to walk in the garden again in the cool of the day with our Lord. That's the state we will come back to our original state when we are forgiven, when we are set free, when we choose to be as forgiven as we want to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the forgiveness. Thank you for being forgiveness. Thank you for everything that you continue to shower on us that is evidence of, witness to this truth of who you are. You know that we miss it, we miss it all the time. But help us more and more, again, to be more aware. Help us to be willing to take the first steps, tentative steps, toward this greater awareness of how we fit into this tapestry of this life. Father, thank you for never leaving or forsaking us for never withholding anything. Help us to see that the table is set, that all we have to do is take and eat and partake, that the blessing is already here, that there's nothing to wait for. There's only a step to be taken. And then maybe we will be closer to you this day than last. So thank you, Father, for being there for us every step of the way. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand.